Blog Talk Radio. Namaste. You are now in the Funk Soul Cafe, a cool, hot, soulful radio show for artists, writers, and so much more, hosted by yours truly, Robert Batista. So sit back, grab a nice, warm, and soulful cup of java or chai, and listen and enjoy. I was born longer ago than I care to admit, and right because if I don't, I get very cranky and distracted, which is destructive of relationships. Of course, relationships suffer anyway when one has to spend so much time writing, rewriting, researching, reading, rereading, and reading again. If it was easy, I would have lost interest long ago. These are the candid words of tonight's guest, author K.L. Biles. Namaste, K.L. Biles, and welcome to the Funk Soul Cafe. Hello, Robert. How are you? I'm doing great, K.L. Let's first start off by taking your Java order. We have a wonderful variety of fine espressos cappuccinos, and lattes. And we also have herbal teas for those tea lovers. So what's your fancy, Kim? Well, usually I have a quad mocha latte. That's a mocha latte with four shots of espresso. Woo, that sounds awesome. (laughs) Let me go ahead and get that up for you right now. Thank you. Here you go. Enjoy it. Thank you. Delicious. It is. So, KL, so good having you on the Funk Soul Cafe. Let's start out with you discussing your path and origination into writing for the public. At what point in your journey did you decide to become a published author? Um, well, I have been writing pretty much all of my life. Right. The the main character, Jim Morgan, came to me when I was a child. And so I – actually, my first story I wrote in the eighth grade. It was a school assignment. And I had always planned to publish in some form. The idea of self-publishing, that came later. Um, when I took a writing course to make sure I knew what I was doing and found out that I do, 
And my teacher said, you have a greater chance of getting struck by lightning than getting a publisher. So it's like, okay, well, then I'll just do it myself. So when you said <laughs> that you uh, basically took a writing course, where did you take this course at? I took it at a local community college here. I have a degree in communications, but right. the writing course I took, yes, the writing course I took much later. And um, I had a wonderful, wonderful instructor, and he was he's always very encouraging. And we would essentially would sit down and we would take turns reading our work. So the first time that anyone in the class saw it was when um, – I or one of the other students was reading it out loud. And I kept trying to get him to say something about my style, but I don't think he was paying attention to my style. He said that my <laughs> writing was mesmerized. Well, he said it, my writing was mesmerizing. Wow. So I think he just got caught up in the story. And, you know, really a writer's style probably should kind of fade to the background, let the people enjoy the story. So, so let's talk about the seeds of germination of your first book in the series called Rising Crow. Take us through its original conception and why you felt you wanted to write this one particular story. Well, actually, Rising Crow started as something much longer. I had written okay. um, the first Crow series as one book, and then when I looked at the word count, I realized that it would be the longest novel in history. <laughs> so, yeah. So I was very upset. I was really depressed because I was like, what am I going to do? You know, you, you think of like when in, in the Bible when the woman has the baby and Solomon says, cut it in half. You know, it's like, how am I going to do this? What am I going to do? So finally, after about three days of being extremely depressed, I realized, okay, I'm going to have to divide it up. And it actually worked out well. Um, that's how Rising Crow came to be um, as far as where it ends, where the story ends in, in this particular novel. But it also allowed me to explore um, the whole story in more detail. So that was actually kind of, I realized that, you know, sometimes you think something's really horrible and it turns out that it works out for the best. And right. it did. So now you just mentioned it, earlier that. Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, no. Go ahead, please. Mm -hmm. You just mentioned earlier that you had your protagonist in mind, Jim Morgan, for for ages. Um, and it looks like your male protagonist, Jim Morgan, is a character that's deep and well layered and indelibly unforgettable. Did you dream him up? Or is he a composite of people you know? I think I read where you saw him in a dream initially. Is that true? That's true. That is true. There is no, other than him, there's no aspect of the dream that's actually in the story. But that's where it, it started. And, um, and I thought, you know, this character in this dream is, is very intriguing. And so I just kind of built this world around him. And I I think it had always been in the 19th century as far as when I was, was thinking about him. And what's interesting is even when I go back and read the story that I wrote when I was like 13 years old, there are many, most of the actual elements of his character were present 
even then. And after right. that story, I I went I continued writing, and there were things like his tolerance for alcohol. Well, I had never even had a drink at that point, but um, his tolerance for alcohol is pretty much actually the same as mine. Um, but there were things that I just understood. I just knew even at that young age. I was, I guess, a very deep thinker for a child, maybe. <laughs> And so he's kind of been my constant companion. Every every morning I wake up thinking about the stories and as I go to sleep at night I'm thinking about the stories and just trying to I think a good a good novel you just keep adding layers to the onion. And that's what I I try to do. And as a self-publisher I feel like I have the freedom to do that. I met with a writing group about a, actually exactly a week ago, and they were talking about how publishers, they don't want a novel that's over like 100,000 words. Right. And I'm thinking, you know, um, well, Victor Hugo would never get published in, in this climate. Uh, neither would Moby Dick. Melville would be told, hey, we, want, we like the first three chapters and we like the last three, but all that stuff in the middle, get rid of it. And I always feel like now the publishers, they, don't, they want an apple core. And what do you do with an apple core? You toss it away. They don't want this. I don't think they really want a rich, layered story that needs words and needs time to develop. So that's what I hope that I have done in this story. My readers seem to be really enjoying it. I'm told that you can't put it down. It is a long book, but it's a fast read. People tend to just fly through it. And I had people um, where I work reading it on their phone. I would send it you know, via email, and they would at lunch be reading it on this little tiny screen because they just couldn't put it down. They didn't even want to wait till they got back that evening. So it's it was often hard to write, but hopefully fun to read. <laughs> you know, Kim, about Jim, you write, Never having known kindness, Jim unflinchingly faces bullets and torture, but cringes gentle touch. He seems to be in a constant state of contradiction and confliction of his demons on the soul, wouldn't you say? Yes, yes. And he's also, he's 15 when the story starts. So he's still trying to find where he belongs in the world. And I think one of the most interesting things about Jim is where he thinks he belongs, what he thinks that he has to do to be accepted. It's not necessarily how things are. And that's something that's going to be explored in more detail in one of the later novels. Um, Some of the people closest to Jim are afraid that maybe the reason he keeps putting himself in danger they're worried that maybe he's wanting to die. He isn't, but they can't understand why he keeps throwing himself into these situations. And he and he's right in believing that he's really the only man who can protect people in some of these conditions. But for him to keep doing this and keep sacrificing over and over and over, that's a, an element of of him that I have enjoyed exploring and trying to figure out for myself, well, what makes this guy keep doing this? And um, I've, I've always believed that, that what drives people the hardest are usually the things that you don't realize that are almost subconscious. 
And I think that's one reason people kind of, I have women tell me that, that they they want to take care of him. They want him to be happy. When I was taking right. the writing class, I had this one woman tell me, she asked me that night, are you going to read tonight? And I said, well, I don't know if, if he lets me. And she said, well, I want to know what, what's going to happen to him. I, I think about him during the weekend. I get worried. I want him to be okay. So people <laughs> think of him. people think of him as a real person. And I always say, well, I'll be talking about the novels when my son will say, "You, this is fiction, you realize. I was like, yes, but if it's not real to me, how can it be real to the reader? So it's right. very real to me. Right, right. Now, you just mentioned a few moments ago that at, at times writing this piece was difficult, hard for you. Was there ever a point where you had to stop, put it down for a while, and then pick it back up? <laughs> Well, yeah, for about 20 years. Um, I, yeah, um, well, when my children were little, it would have been very difficult to write. And I was, I had started writing some, and I had written some. It's actually from, um, a, it's a continuation of the same characters, but it's going to be a series under a different name. Anyway, um, and my son read some of it and was traumatized and he's still traumatized to this day, and he's 30. Even though Mommy wow. said, don't read this. Yeah. Um, so I had started much later in the story and then went back, and I was like, well, let me try and write a synopsis. Well, that synopsis ended up just turning into the novel. I'm apparently synopsis-challenged when it comes to writing. Um, and... So I just, there were some, some new elements that I introduced. One of the real fun things about writing is to just kind of get lost in the story. I mean, you know where you're going. And sometimes you end up having to cut a lot of that out. But that's still half the fun is just kind of seeing where the characters in the story takes you. And one thing that I always try to do when I'm thinking about plot elements I usually reject the first thing that comes to my mind because if the first thing that comes to my mind, it's going to be the first thing that comes to someone else's mind. And keep it interesting because life always throws you, as soon as you think you have it down, as soon as you think you have a path, something comes up and makes you rethink everything around you. And that's what I try to do, to do in the story. I really have often thought of it more as a fictional biography. Um, rather than as as a genre. I'm sure that the genre is Western. I had another writer say that I should call it a Western romance. So um, I'm still toying with that idea. I don't know if there's enough romance in it to be a romance because I've never really read one. But I will say I've never read a Western either because I've been writing one all my life. And uh, <laughs> I didn't, well, I never want, I didn't want to copy from someone else. Right, so, right, right. You know, so I've always avoided reading them. I'll read other works by writers that write westerns, but I won't read their westerns because I don't want to subconsciously, you know, I want it to be my work. Understood. Let's talk about the publishing process. Um, I know you just said earlier you self-published. Talk about any challenges you experience in getting your book to the world? Did you have any challenges self-publishing? Well, I feel like I'm still challenged because I still probably know everyone by first and last name who's bought it at this point. So thank you for this exposure. I really appreciate it. Um, My pleasure. The I had a wonderful book designer 
if I may say who she is, Kristen Adelson of Still Point Press. She did a wonderful job. The cover was based on a concept of my son-in-law's, Dom Murphy of Vendetta Comics, LLC. He's an amazing artist. And Kristen really helped walk me through the the whole process about, you know, you have to get your LCCN number and your ISBN number and and all this. And she really helped me with that and did all the design. Right. I if, I feel like at my age, I don't really have time to learn how to do all that formatting stuff, so I will let her do that. So that was, and getting it edited, I had a great editor. Um, I encourage anyone who self-publishes to get their book edited. I've been doing reviews for other authors, and sometimes people are putting things out there that aren't edited. And what yes. I have found to be be one of the biggest challenges is um, – some people aren't interested in you because it's self-published because they don't realize they think that that all self-published books are just you know someone's just throwing something out there. This book I've worked really hard on. I don't think there's even any typos in it because I always I read over the proof you know before I put it out there. Um, my daughter read it on Kindle and trust me, my daughter Rebecca Murphy, if she had if there had been any typos in it, she would have told me. So there were some formatting issues that she found and my um, book designer took care of them. So I think the biggest challenge for a self-publisher is to let people know that you are doing high-quality work. That even though, yes, I I published it myself, um, the books that I read growing up were Hugo, Dickens, Melville, Conrad. Those were the writers that, that I studied. And I don't claim to be on their level, but I think that my book, as far as production quality, is just as good as anything that you're going to get out of any other publisher. Um, and since there's so newspapers won't review you as soon as they find it out that you're self-published. Um, so there are cha- there are definitely challenges. I know the New York Times bestseller list won't um, they won't consider you if you're self-published. But I'm not going to let any of that bother me. I know that I'm still here, and these books are going to get out there, and they're going to be read eventually. My husband understands it's the long game, but I don't believe that I lived through two rollovers and all the things that I've been through to have this just sit on a shelf somewhere. So I know that it's going to take time. The other thing, Kim, is that this is slowly but surely changing. Um, with you know, we may not get the New York Times to do reviews, but the concept and the perception of self-published books being bad or not as good is is changing. I talk to a lot of people in the industry, and that is slowly changing, especially with the advent of that book and story and movie called The Martian with Matt Damon. I don't know if you saw it. Or heard of it. I have not seen the movie, but I have heard of it. This guy uh, published it, published it, self-published, just like you did, just like I did, and eventually it took off, and uh, now it, the rest is history, you know, and people know that there are good quality books and works out there that are self-published, so that is slowly changing. Um, speaking of the book's cover, that grabbed my attention right away. I love the book's cover art with the 
spread wing black crow. Talk about its metaphor and symbolism. Well, the crow is, um, I actually have it here. The crow was long believed to be an omen of transformation. And right. the American Indians believe that the crow is the keeper of the sacred law and protects the sacred writings of the great spirit. And I don't, I don't want to give away a spoiler, but there is a definite spiritual element to the book, which okay. to an observant reader is even in the, the first couple lines. So uh, Jim becomes known as Thundercrow. That's what the, um, the Apache call him. So there's, there is a lot of symbolism there. And, of course, it has to be a blue-eyed crow. And actually, when crows are babies, sometimes they do have blue eyes. So blue-eyed crows do exist. So I wasn't completely fantasizing all of that. <laughs> and Jim has blue eyes, so it had to be a blue-eyed crow. And I also think that it's so neat that um, Noah released the raven, and the raven circled the earth. And I know that to some of the native cultures over in the Americas, the raven brought the sunlight and the daylight. And I always think about that raven, you know, after it's been raining and pouring and just seeing a bird flying in the sky. And I've always, I just, I like crows. I always smile when I hear them. I was hearing some today and I was like, oh, that's good. You know, maybe my, my interview will go really, really well because the crows are out there. <laughs> An omen, a good omen. <laughs> yes. KL, yes. you have graciously agreed to read from your book for us. Can you set up the piece before you read it? I certainly can. It doesn't take too much. Um, <clears throat> the, the novel starts in 1870, and Jim is 15 years old, and he becomes a freight guard. The technical term would have been messenger, but because they guard the stage, that's what they're called. And I will start that. It's Jim and his driver, Hank. Jim and Hank enjoyed the tranquility of the road, but knew it couldn't last, since the trend of a stage robbery a week continued. Then one afternoon, as they headed southeast toward Dillard and were almost out of Pell's playground, Jim heard the call of a crow and sensed something. He tossed away the core of the apple he'd been eating and looked around. They were still in the dry lands, where the trees fell away to be replaced by large rocks. The rumbling stage kicked up a cloud of dust in its wake. Jim was sitting on top of the coach and, through the haze, thought he saw the glint of sunlight on metal. He gazed intently behind them, trying through force of will to make his eyes penetrate the swirling brown turmoil, then readied his weapon. Hank involuntarily shuddered at the sound of Jim's rifle as the guard swung the lever down and brought it up, forcing a round into the chamber, Jim muttered. He stood so he could see over the whirling dirt and steadied himself against the luggage. Hank heard him. He would normally gently chastise the young man, but he didn't want to break the guard's concentration. The company forbade the use of foul language on the stage. His mind shot back to the first time he'd had to scold Jim. The stage was rounding a sharp curve, and it was his new guard's first trip. Jim, not realizing how much the coach could sway in a turn, had reached for his bag and nearly been thrown off. God damn it, Jim had growled loud enough for the passengers to hear. Hank couldn't help but smile as he remembered Jim's response when he'd reminded his new guard not to swear. Sorry, profanity was my first language. Jim saw two <laughs> riders following them, and they had their weapons drawn. Hank heard the report of Jim's rifle, and his smile faded. Before either of the men could get off a shot, Jim fired twice, and both men lay in the road dead. Jim heard gunfire behind him. He turned as another shot rang out and felt a sharp pain in his right arm. 
he saw two more riders coming toward the stage, apparently using the same tactic as the men he'd killed when he rode with Happ and Joe. The riders, approaching at a gallop, didn't know their comrades were already dead. Jim fired and dropped them both before either could get off another round. Then he scanned their surroundings for other attackers as the stage rolled on, leaving the bodies in the dust. You okay? Jim asked Hank. Fine, and you? Hank replied over his shoulder. They winged me, Jim answered, tying his bandana around his upper right arm. Hank then knocked on the coach and one of the passengers stuck his head out of the window. Anybody hurt in there? asked the driver. No, we're fine, replied the man. Are they gone? They're dead, Hank answered. The man nodded and disappeared back into the coach. It was early evening when they arrived at the next ten station. This was the one tended by the old man and his half-Mexican grandson. The old man took care of the horses while Jim and the boy unloaded what luggage the passengers would need for the night. This done, everyone but Jim left the barn, which was attached to the living area for security reasons. That Jim remained behind wasn't unusual because he often checked on the horses one last time. Though the company deemed human life important and one of Jim's duties was to protect it, the horses were of more monetary value to the freight company than the passengers were. There would always be more passengers, the company reasoned, but good horses were hard to come by. This time, however, Jim remained in order to tend his wound. He walked to the far side of the coach and opened his bag, which he had tossed down with the passenger's luggage. Then he lit a lantern and took out a bottle and some bandages. He stripped to the waist and poured some of the contents of the bottle on his arm. He grimaced from the pain as the liquid soaked into the wound. Then he began to bandage it. When Jim didn't return after a few minutes, Hank decided to look for him. As he entered the barn, he saw a light on the other side of the coach and approached it. He found Jim with his back to him, attempting to wrap a cloth around his arm. What caught Hank's attention and caused him to stop dead and shiver as if his blood had turned to ice were the raised scars across Jim's back. The driver felt his breath escape his body and a deep ache in his chest as shock wrapped its cold fingers around his heart. He shook off the sensation and approached Jim, trying to pretend he hadn't noticed anything. Here, let me help you, Hank offered. Jim spun to face him, his eyes flashing and his breathing short. Hank realized the young man considered just his presence a form of attack at that moment. He ignored Jim's reaction and the possible danger to his person that came from Jim still being armed. Did you wash this, he asked, inspecting the wound. Jim just glared at him for a moment, then shook his head. Hank strode over to a water pump in the barn and filled a bucket. Then he took a bar of soap, washed his hands, and returned to Jim. The driver's deliberate manner calmed the young man, and he stood patiently as Hank carefully washed and rinsed the wound. The big man noticed that Jim hardly reacted to the pain. Is this what you want on it? Hank asked, picking up the bottle Jim had set on the coach step. Sam gave it to me. Jim stated his voice low, almost a growl. Hank smelled it and shook his head. That's strong stuff. It's alcohol, but don't drink it. Sam said it could kill you. The guard replied in the same tone as before. Hank held Jim's arm out and carefully poured the liquid over both sides of the wound since the bullet had passed through. He noticed that again Jim's only reaction to the pain was to tense his jaw. Then Hank took a fresh bandage and with Jim's arm bent to flex the muscle, he began to wind the cloth around the injury. I've never seen stripes like that on a white man before, Hank commented as he worked. He was holding Jim's right arm where he couldn't grab his gun, but he felt the young man tense. I didn't much like seeing them on a black man either. Anything you want to talk about? Jim shook his head. It's your own business, Hank said as he tied the bandage. It doesn't change what I think of you, Jimmy. Yeah, I enjoy that. wow. Yes, yes, I enjoy that a lot. I wanted to know if the bullet went through. And when you did say that, uh, I, I said, yeah, that's, that was really good. Uh, yeah, yeah, I was locked in. Good, good story. So, 
You know what, Kim? A five-star Amazon review by Piara states in part, this story had every element of a good story should have. A strong plot, attention to detail, but best of all, fleshed out, well-written, and well-rounded character development. There's an abundance of well-illustrated scenes that really make you feel like you are right there, like the one you just read in the story. And that's something I really look for in a good book. From the opening chapter, setting the tone for the entire work. It's a great read and is filled with dramatic and well-described moments that will stay with you for a long time. Wow, that says it all. You nailed it, KL. Huh? Thank you. Thank you. What'd I really you appreciate that. that. I that's that's what I've I've tried to do. Um You nailed it. I mean I, she said the characters will stay with you for a long time. That there could not be a better compliment for a writer that the reader says the characters stay with you, right? Yes, that's 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 definitely true. It was um I just I want people to read it and to enjoy it, but I feel like a a good novel you enjoy, a great novel, and I'm not saying that mine is, that's up to my readers, but a great novel you come away with something, something that that stays with you. You um you feel better for having read it, like you have a new view of the world, something that you've learned either right. about the world or about yourself. Or about humanity or about yourself. Exactly, exactly. Um, Let's talk about K.L. Biles, the person. Where did you grow up and what was your childhood like? I grew up in Richmond, Virginia. I still live in Virginia. Um, And it it was a fun childhood. You know, I we had a, a big yard, not as big as what I have now. I've got seven acres now, but wow, it was, okay. and I was able, yeah, I was able to ram, you know, ramble around the neighborhood with with my friends and that kind of thing. But then, uh, when I was in fourth grade, I changed schools, and none of my friends were in that school, and right. that's when I really became more introverted. And it was. Probably sometime around there that Jim came to me. It could have been a little before. It's hard to remember. But I think that that was the biggest change that ended up leading me to express myself through the written word. Um, When I was younger, I had dreamed of writing screenplays. So I had written everything in script form. Then when I became an adult is when I started you know, I realized, well, I like third-person omniscient because then I can tell you what the characters are thinking, and that's always fun. And I think that that's probably what ended up making me a writer, was just um, having to rely on my own inner resources rather than just running around outside all the time getting into lots of trouble and smoking cigarettes (laughs) and doing things that little kids aren't supposed to do. (laughs) But anyway... um, so I, I, so like I said before, sometimes the things that you think that are really hard that you don't like, it's, it's sometimes if you give it a chance, it can work out for the best. And I think that it did. Um, this has always been a, it's always been a goal to publish 
this book. And when I first held it in my hands, I think my husband was about to start crying too. He said, don't start, because I knew if, we both, if I started crying, we'd both start crying, because it had been so long, over 20 years that, well, actually over 40 years that I've been working towards this. And I'm really thankful that I did it. And um, the second novel's ready. I just, I'm wanting to get it edited. I'm just trying to save up some money to get it edited. And um, I I have people reading it on their computers right now because they'll read the first one and then they say, I really, really need to know what happens. But that's, that was pretty much my childhood. I mean, I didn't have to want for anything, thank God. Um, But... So I it was I didn't have to be focused on the outer things. I could focus on the inner things, and that's pretty much what a writer does. And that's one reason why it, it I think marketing can be so hard for writers because we're used to being in our own little room in front of a computer, just tapping away, and then suddenly we have to be these social butterflies to get people's attention. And that's that's a little challenging, I think sometimes. But I I'm enjoying this journey. I feel like it's just beginning, and I am enjoying it. And I really yeah, think PRS you know, and all the other people have given me wonderful reviews. A lot of authors feel that after they write the book, that's it. You know, the book is going to fly <laughs> off the shelves or it's going to sell itself. And like you said, marketing. I mean, so many authors are great, fantastic writers, but terrible marketers. How have you handled the marketing of your book? Um, pretty much I just try to keep some copies with me. I had to change a PIN number at the bank, and it was the one for my um, Barrel Proof Press account because that's my, my publishing, my printing, printing company. And so I was talking about the book, and I sold the woman at the bank a book. <laughs> and then after, yeah. And then after I got the uh, the five-star review from Reader's Favorite, I went by there again. I had to deposit a check, so I went in there again yesterday to see, you know, how she's liking it and, and that kind of thing. I sold one to the woman who works in the post office, and uh, I sold some Go at, ahead. at doctor's Go ahead, offices. Kid, that's great. <laughs> yeah, you know, so I figure eventually enough people will find out about it that, um, you know, that word of mouth, I'm, I'm – Still need to talk to the libraries. I was I've called and left a message, but I'm going to have to, to try and get hold of people at the libraries. And there's some book clubs around here that I'm going to um, approach. I was a little dismayed to find out that they had everything planned out for the whole year. I was like, well, you know, there's next year. So I'm, I'm going to try to, right. to do that. And I, it's my husband and I, like I said, we both knew it was the long game. You know, writers can go for 20 years without people really knowing who they are at my age i hope it doesn't take quite that long um (laughs) but (laughs) well i'm going to get the books out there and and they'll be out there and even if if i'm long gone before people notice and start reading them that's okay because i i felt like i've made my by getting this book out there i've made my mark you know people will will always know that i was here you know without having to draw graffiti on some wall or something and don't worry, Kim, I just read where a woman just published her first novel at the tender age of 94. Well, God first bless her. First novel. And yes. you know what? God bless her, and that gives us all hope. <laughs> 
94 she published her first book. So yeah, there's, there's definitely, definitely still time for us. So, Kim, legend has it that you pushed your husband's 1,500-pound long tractor 25 yards in an ice storm with the rear wheels locked because you didn't know how to release them. So I guess anything else is a piece of cake, ain't it? Yes. Yes, that's something I would not be doing again at my age. I was a little younger then. But yes, determination. That's the people when I, in the second chapter of the book, and Jim pushes a wagon out of a barn, and when I took the writing class, the the young people thought that he was superhuman. I was like, no, it's called adrenaline, and it's called determination. And I told him that story because it's true. And it's one of those things when you know that it is something that you have to do, you do it. It doesn't matter whether it hurts. It doesn't matter how tired you are or if you want to give up, you do it. And that's what I did. I had bruises on my legs for weeks after that (laughs) from throwing myself against that machine. Yeah, I was like, why do you come get me? I said, you were sleeping, so I didn't want to wake you up. (laughs) We do what we have to do. In closing... What's next for K.L. Biles? I know you have a sequel written or in the process, but what other irons do you have in the fire coming up? Um, well, I have been out of my other job because I got, I hurt my, well, I had to get surgery on my hand because I'm old. And I'm wanting to get some work as a um, writing coach because I'm reading a lot of other writers and they have really good stories, but they could use some tweaking and some right. guidance. And I, that's that's really what I want to do. I'm always willing to help other writers. Um, when people need reviews, all they need to do is ask. That's pretty much what I've been doing the last few months is doing reviews and, and really just working for other authors more than, than for myself. And I am I do want to get one of your books, sir, and read it and review it because I think that would be fun. And be um, great. yes. So I know you know, writers they need reviews and sometimes they'll review mine in return and, and sometimes not. That's okay. There's no required quid pro quo. But I do like reading other writers and then the there was one day I was gonna sit down and I was gonna read Lord Jim again, you know, by Joseph Conrad and just really enjoy it. And I was really planning to do that that day, and a writer asked me for a review. I was like, oh, darn, because I didn't want to make him wait, you know. <laughs> so poor poor Lord Jim has been waiting again because I just – I haven't read that book in a long time, and it's it's what of I just – I love Conrad. There again, he'd never get published now. They'd be wanting him to break everything down into little paragraphs, and he'd probably throw, the, throw everything that he had at them and say no. But um, there again – different styles for different writers. And that was one thing that was was funny was when I wrote my short story, my teacher graded me down because I put everything in little paragraphs. And then when I took the writing class, I found out, yeah, that's what you're supposed to do. So I was doing that right instinctively. So that was fun. <laughs> so um, give out your contact information, how people can contact you, follow you, uh, your website. Uh, give out any information you'd like. The website is still under construction, but they, um, when it is up and running, they would be able to find it by searching, just search for K.L. Biles, that's B as in boy, Y-L-E-S, 
I'm on Twitter at KL Biles. I'm on Facebook as KL Biles. And there's a Rising Crow Readers Group for people who've read the book if they want to look at it. And they, my email is klbiles at comcast.net. You have been listening to the Funk Soul Cafe with your host, Robert Batista. Look for my free short stories, Carmela's Dream and My Baby Has No Name, on Smashwords.com. My guest has been debut author K.L. Biles, and her exciting book, the first of a series, is called Rising Crow. Pick up your copy today. Thank you so much, Kim, for being a guest on the Funk Soul Cafe. Thank you. Have a good evening. You too.